Section 66 of The Man Who Loves by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maxim Babich from Desnogorsk. The Man Who Loves by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the Third. The Beginning of the Fisher. Chapter 8. Symptoms of Poisoning. The apparition did not return. It did not reappear in the theatre, but it reappeared to the memory of Gwynplaine. Gwynplaine was, to a certain degree, troubled. It seemed to him that for the first time in his life he had seen a woman. He made that first stumble, a strange dream. We should beware of the nature of the reveries that fasten on us. Reverie has in it the mystery and subtlety of an odour. It is to thought what perfume is to the tuberose. It is at times the exudation of a venomous idea, and it penetrates like a vapor. You may poison yourself with reveries, as with flowers. An intoxicating suicide, exquisite and malignant. The suicide of the soul is evil thought. In it is the poison. Reverie attracts, cajoles, lures, entwines, and then makes you its accomplice. It makes you bear your half in the trickeries which it plays on conscience. It charms, then it corrupts you. We may say of reverie as of play. One begins by being a dupe and ends by being a cheat. Gwynplaine dreamed. He had never before seen a woman. He had seen the shadow in the women of the populace, and he had seen the soul in Dia. He had just seen the reality, a warm and living skin, under which one felt the circulation of passionate blood, an outline with the precision of marble, and the undulation of the wave, a high and impassive mean, mingling refusal with attraction, and summing itself up in its own glory, hair of the color of the reflection from a furnace, a gallantry of adornment producing in herself and in others a tremor of voluptuousness, the half-revealed nudity betraying a disdainful desire to be coveted at a distance by the crowd, an ineradicable coquetry, the charm of impenetrability, temptation seasoned by the glimpse of perdition, a promise to the senses and a menace to the mind, a double anxiety, the one desire, the other fear. He had just seen these things. He had just seen woman. He had seen more and less than a woman. He had seen a female, and at the same time an Olympian, the female of a god. The mystery of sex had just been revealed to him. And where? On inaccessible heights, at an infinite distance. O oh, mocking destiny! The soul, that celestial essence, he possessed. He held it in his hand. It was dear. Sex, that terrestrial embodiment, he perceived in the heights of heaven. It was that woman. A duchess. More than a goddess, Ursus had said. What a precipice! Even dreams dissolved before such a perpendicular height to escalade. Was he going to commit the folly of dreaming about the unknown beauty? 
he debated with himself. He recalled all that Ursus had said of high stations which are almost royal. The philosopher's disquisitions, which had hitherto seemed so useless, now became landmarks for his thoughts. A very thin layer of forgetfulness often lies over our memory, through which at times we catch a glimpse of all beneath it. His fancy ran on that august world, the peerage, to which the lady belonged, and which was so inexorably placed above the inferior world, the common people, of which he was one. And was he even one of the people? Was not he, the mountebank, below the lowest of the low? For the first time since he had arrived at the age of reflection, he felt his heart vaguely contracted by a sense of his baseness, and of that which we nowadays call abasement. The paintings and the catalogues of Ursus, his lyrical inventories, his dithyrambics of castles, parks, fountains, and colonnades, his catalogues of riches and of power, revived in the memory of Gwynplaine, in the relief of reality mingled with mist. He was possessed with the image of this zenith. That a man should be a lord, it seemed chimerical. It was so, however. Incredible thing! There were lords! But were they of flesh and blood like ourselves? It seemed doubtful. He felt that he lay at the bottom of all darkness, encompassed by a wall, while he could just perceive in the far distance above his head, through the mouth of the pit, a dazzling confusion of azure, of figures, and of rays, which was Olympus. In the midst of this glory, the Duchess shone out resplendent. He felt for this woman a strange, inexpressible longing, combined with a conviction of the impossibility of attainment. This poignant contradiction returned to his mind again and again, notwithstanding every effort. He saw near to him, even within his reach, in close and tangible reality, the soul, and in the unattainable, in the depths of the ideal, the flesh. None of these thoughts attained to certain shape. They were as a vapor within him, changing every instant its form and floating away. But the darkness which the vapor caused was intense. He did not form even in his dreams any hope of reaching the heights where the duchess dwelt. Luckily for him, the vibration of such ladders of fancy, if ever we put out foot upon them, may render our brains dizzy forever. Intending to scale Olympus, we reach Bedlam. Any distinct feeling of actual desire would have terrified him. He entertained none of that nature. Besides, was he likely ever to see the lady again? Most probably not. To fall in love with a passing light on the horizon. Madness cannot reach to that pitch. To make loving eyes at a star, even, is not incomprehensible. It is seen again, it reappears, it is fixed in the sky. But can anyone be enamored of a flash of lightning? Dreams flowed and ebbed within him. The majestic and gallant idol at the back of the box had cast a light over his diffused ideas then faded away. He thought, yet thought not of it, turned to other things, returned to it. It rocked about in his brain, nothing more. It broke his sleep for several nights. 
Sleeplessness is as full of dreams as sleep. It is almost impossible to express in their exact limits the abstract evolutions of the brain. The inconvenience of words is that they are more marked in form than ideas. All ideas have indistinct boundary lines. Words have not. A certain diffused phase of the soul ever escapes words. Expression has its frontiers. Thought has none. The depths of our secret souls are so vast that Gwynplaine's dreams scarcely touch deer. Deer reigned sacred in the center of his soul. Nothing could approach her. Still, for such contradictions make up the soul of man, there was a conflict within him. Was he conscious of it? Scarcely. In his heart of hearts he felt a collision of desires. We all have our weak points. Its nature would have been clear to Ursus, but to Gwynplaine it was not. Two instincts, one the ideal, the other sexual, were struggling within him. Such contests occur between the angels of light and darkness on the edge of the abyss. At length the angel of darkness was overthrown. One day Gwynplaine suddenly thought no more of the unknown woman. The struggle between two principles, the duel between his earthly and his heavenly nature, had taken place within his soul, and at such a depth that he had understood it but dimly. One thing was certain, that he had never for one moment ceased to adore Dea. He had been attacked by a violent disorder, his blood had been fevered, but it was over. Dea alone remained. Gwynplaine would have been much astonished had anyone told him that Dea had ever been, even for a moment, in danger. And in a week or two, the phantom which had threatened the hearts of both their souls faded away. Within Gwynplaine nothing remained but the heart, which was the hearth, and the love, which was its fire. Besides, we have just said that the Duchess did not return. Ursus thought it all very natural. The lady with the gold piece is a phenomenon. She enters, pays, and vanishes. It would be too much joy were she to return. As to Dia, she made no allusion to the woman who had come and passed away. She listened, perhaps, and was sufficiently enlightened by the sighs of Ursus, and now and then by some significant exclamation, such as, one does not get ounces of gold every day. She spoke no more of the woman. This showed deep instinct. The soul takes obscure precautions, in the secrets of which it is not always admitted itself. To keep silence about any one seems to keep them afar off. One fears that questions may call them back. We put silence between us, as if we were shutting a door. So the incident fell into oblivion. Was it ever anything? Had it ever occurred? Could it be said that a shadow had floated between Gwynplaine and Dea? Dea did not know of it, nor Gwynplaine either. No, nothing had occurred. The Duchess herself was blurred in the distant perspective, like an illusion. It had been but a momentary dream passing over Gwynplaine out of which he had awakened. When it fades away, a reverie, like a mist, leaves no trace behind. And when the cloud has passed on, 
love shines out as brightly in the heart as the sun in the sky. End of section 66